Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. As we're preparing for uh, this sermon series, we brought up the idea of talking about Jonah, and I was pretty excited because just like the other two stories we've covered, Zacchaeus and uh, Abraham and Isaac, it's one that's pretty familiar to us. It's the one about a guy who gets swallowed by a big fish and gets thrown up three days later, uh, but it's so much more than that. It's one that sticks out for good reason. You see, because as children, I think we find it gross. At least I know I did. Uh, What in the world would it have smelled like to be in the belly of a fish for three days? How does that thing even work? How does it work that uh, you can be swallowed whole by a fish and uh, live to tell that tale? You see, but as adults, I think we start to discount the story. We're given a steady diet of naturalism and scientific rationality, and slowly our education begins to chip away at this story. At best, it moves towards a figurative story where we find allegory, and at worst, it's mythology. It can't be trusted. You see, we disbelieve this story because we can't rationalize it. I mean, We ask the same questions we did as a kid, but suddenly the tone is more skeptical. How could he survive in there? How could there be a fish big enough to eat him whole? How could a man live inside of a fish for three days and live to tell the story? We can't quite figure it out. Let me share a quick thought. God is not confined to fit in a naturalistic worldview. God is not confined to fit into the uh, view that we hold most dear. Rather, God is supernatural and by his very nature defies natural laws. He is not bound to fit in the things that we think he should fit to. He, He gets to determine what natural laws are. The things that we study as science, God is the one who founded them. He's the one who determines how all things hold together. And we see throughout Scripture, not just in this one moment, we see him time and time again break and suspend the laws of nature in order to bring about his kingdom purposes. He does uh, what science can't explain and what can only be attributed to, to God. And so my goal today as we get started is not to leave you with evidences or a clever theory as to how all of this worked together. It's not to to tell you how a man survived in the belly of a fish aside from to say, God, because that's the only explanation I can give you. Instead, I hope you will see the timeless truth of this story, that God is in control and his plan is always best. You see, his kingdom purposes are always going to be accomplished. And the question is whether we want to follow his prompting or if we will take an unexpected detour, a not-so-pleasant trip out to sea. As we get started, will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for who you are. Thank you that we have the opportunity to read your word, that we could open the pages of Scripture and see what you would have for us. Father, as we look at this familiar passage 
would you truly give us a fresh perspective? Uh, would we see what you were doing in the midst of, of the life of Jonah and in our lives today? Father, I ask that as your word is declared, that I would become less and you would become more, that people would hear your voice over mine. Father, would we have ears to hear and hearts to change? And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. And so really the heart of this story is what I just said, uh, that God's kingdom purposes will always come about. The question is whether or not we'll take a detour. And as we look at Jonah's autobiography of him desperately trying to get us to listen to the wisdom of God instead of the wisdom we muster from our own perspective or the perspective of maybe a, a loved one or a coworker uh, who isn't always really concerned for our best, I was instantly reminded of the show The Office. And I personally love the show. And whether or not you love it or you hate it, I'm going to show a quick clip. It's going to be a good one because I think it speaks really well uh, to what we're talking about today. Proceed straight. Well, we're 0 for 6. Last chance is the Elmhurst Country Club. Other side of the lake on the southeast side. I don't get it. I really don't get it. I thought this would work. Through everything I had at that guy, nothing. That's how it goes sometimes, you know. You lose everything, and everything falls apart, and eventually you die and no one remembers you. That is a very good point, Dwight. Make a right turn. Wait, 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 wait. No, 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 no. It means bear right. No. Up there. It said right. It said take a right. No, 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 look. It, it means go up to the right, bear right, over the bridge, and hook up with 307. Make a right Maybe it's turn. a shortcut, Dwight. It said go to the right. It can't mean that. There's what, a lake there. I think it knows where it is going. This is the, the lake. machine knows. This is the lake. Stop yelling at me. No, it's Stop not yelling. yelling. There's no lake here. I mean, like I said, whether or not you love or hate the show, I, I hope that was funny and that you can relate to it. I mean, I know I can. I've never actually driven into a lake, but GPS has absolutely taken me in the wrong direction. I'm sitting there and I'm driving. I'm thinking, this can't be right. This is definitely not what it means. And I still listen to it. This little box or this little voice coming out of a box in my pocket is telling me to go someplace that I know is wrong. And I can't figure it out enough to say, I'm not going to listen to you. And this is essentially what happened in, in, in that clip is that Michael drives into the lake because the wisdom of his passenger who is saying, no, don't drive into the lake. There's clearly a lake. There's a road there. Go up here. And he's saying, no, the box is right. The machine can't be wrong. And Michael listens to the box and all of a sudden there he is in the lake. And this is essentially what's happening in the story of Jonah. You see, the problem in, with the GPS is that the GPS can't factor in all the variables. It's got a limited perspective. And what we need is we need something or perhaps someone who has the ability to see things from a kingdom perspective. And that's what we're really going to unpack today. What would it look like to follow someone who has kingdom perspective? So let's dive into the text again. Verses 1 and 3 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amadi. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarsus. 
He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port, and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. All right, now let's get this straight. Jonah hears from God, and his immediate response is, nope, not doing it, God. I just heard from God, and my immediate response is not nope. Like, if that's me, I don't get it. You see, because I would probably wrestle with, maybe, did I actually hear God's voice? I don't really like that command. I'm just going to pretend it wasn't God. Jonah, on the other hand, says, I know it was God, and I'm telling him nope straight away. There is no doubt in my mind that this is God, but I'm not doing what he wants. And so I wrestled with it. I was like, why in the world would Jonah do that? And from his perspective, there's probably a pretty good reason for it. You see, because God had asked him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And at the human level, like I said, Nineveh was a city that any proud Israelite would have wanted to see destroyed. It was the capital city of the Assyrians who represented a constant source of harassment and threat to the Israelites. In fact, two of the prophets before Jonah said that the Assyrians would be used to uh, bring punishment and discipline upon the Israelites. So to see your enemy destroyed would have been a great deal. So from Jonah's perspective, I guess his nope isn't really all that bad. But as I kept on thinking about it, his response still seems maybe a little bit thick-headed. You see, God's command is for Jonah to go and preach because the Ninevites were wicked. He wasn't pleased with the Ninevites. And whenever God wasn't pleased with the Israelites, uh, there was discipline brought upon them. So Jonah has to probably think, well, shouldn't they just be disciplined? But his immediate response is still no. Because Jonah would later reveal in chapter 4 that he knew something about God. He knew God was gracious and merciful. That the reason he was sending Jonah wasn't because he was trying to destroy them, but rather that he was trying to save them. And Jonah realizes this and says, I'm out. Get me as far away from God as possible. He books a ticket for what might as well have been the other side of the world. I want you to get a visual so that we have a map of what, where this is all kind of taking place. So A is where Jonah leaves, B is where he's supposed to go, and C, way on the other side of the Mediterranean, that's where we think Tarshish might have been. If not, it would have been Carthage just a little bit further south in North Africa. Either way, that is the other side of the known world at this point. Jonah is getting as far away from God as possible. You see, I imagine that Jonah realizes this actually isn't going to work. He's smart enough to realize God's voice when it was God speaking. So he probably knows a thing or two about God. But what I think he's trying to do is just put some distance between him and God's presence. I think that this is oftentimes the same thing we do. We choose to flee God's presence, his plan, his purpose for our life by waiting. You see, we wait, we wait, wait. We wring our hands and say, ah, maybe not me. And we think maybe we can outlast God. Maybe we can just get him to stop noticing us. Maybe he'll grow bored of us. Uh, eventually, he'll get tired and move on to someone else. The problem is, I've never seen this happen. 
I've never seen God grow tired of, of chasing his people. The Bible doesn't speak to that. You see, his presence can't be shaken that easily. He was going to follow Jonah wherever he went, and he'll go after us wherever we go. So let's reread what happens next for Jonah, starting in verse four. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own God and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. You see, things definitely don't work out the way Jonah thought they would. He's faced with the reality that God can't be escaped by getting on a boat. God decided that Jonah was the man for the job and nothing would stop God from being present with Jonah and he demonstrates it in miraculous fashion. And the same is true for us. We can't escape God by waiting. He's coming after us. That's not to like be scary or threatening, but he's coming after us. If he has a plan and a purpose for us, he wants us to be used by him. He will bring about his kingdom purposes and we can either choose to go with him or we could try and flee from him. We can literally try and get on a boat, but the result will be the same. We might not sink, but God's presence will still follow us. God's presence will go with us wherever we go. And for those of us who aren't following God and doing the things he's commanded us, that is a scary thought. But when we're following in his presence or when we're following his commands, what a great assurance that he won't leave us that we can't flee from his presence, that we can't separate ourselves from him, that he will come after us no matter what. Man, what a great, great promise. And like I said, Jonah gets to experience this in miraculous fashion. In verses 15, it says, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And there's two things happening here. The first is this, the guys on the boat, they recognize Jonah's God for who he is. He is not like their lowercase g gods. He is not something that man has come up with. This is the God who has power over the natural world. And so they see this and they respond the way that Jonah should have responded to begin with. They worship him. They worship God. And if you're like, I don't really know if they would have worshiped God. Remember, worship is simply our thankful response to God for who he is and what he's done. And if the God of the universe just spared your life and you're not thankful, I don't quite understand what's going on in your head. Like our only response in that moment is, thank you, God, for not destroying me. That's worship. 
At its most basic level, that is worship. And if that's the beginning point for us, what a great place to begin to realize that God has spared our lives. And second, and this is really the point we're unpacking here, is that Jonah felt God's provision. And this is maybe the first time, this is definitely the first time in the story that Jonah's gonna feel God's provision. Notice what it says, the Lord provided a huge fish. Jonah was rescued. God calms the seas and provides Jonah with safe passage back to dry land. The method is unconventional, absolutely, but it leaves zero doubt. This was a God thing. There is no way to be like, oh, well, maybe it was just, it just happened by a circumstance. Like it was happenstance that there happened to be a big enough fish whale, whatever we want to call it, that managed to eat this person whole and then spit him up three days later. That doesn't happen, but maybe it just happened this one time. Uh, No, if the easiest explanation is God, that's the best explanation. That's, uh, That's where we should go, because if that's what God is telling us, why would we doubt him? And so Jonah experiences God's provision And we know that this is not lost on Jonah because of his prayer. At the beginning of chapter two, it says, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. You see, Jonah realizes that the Lord is responding to him, that he's providing for him in these moments, that as he cries out to God, God is not just inclined to sit back on his throne and be like, ah, you brought it on yourself. Rather, he breaks the laws of nature and brings a fish and says, I'm going to have him eat you and get you to where I want you to go. And Jonah realizes God's provision It is happening right there. He's feeling God's provision. And it's not the first time. Throughout this short book, we see it over and over again. Jonah 2.10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. God is again intervening and providing a way for Jonah to do the thing that God wanted him to do. Later in chapter four, Jonah had gone out and sat at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn and the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. You see, God constantly provided for Jonah. If you didn't notice it, circle all the spots where that word provided is used throughout this book. It might say uh, brought, provided. ESV has some different word that I can't remember off the top of my head. But there is this theme of God's provision running throughout the book of Jonah. And it's easy to see this in the text Because even when it's a provision of discipline, it's still God providing. Because you see two different types of provision. The first is God's uh, provision of blessing, which is him 
having the whale or the fish swallow him up and saving his life and spitting him back up. And then when Jonah gets upset, God provides in the midst of discipline and says, I'll give you a plant and then I'm going to destroy the plant. And then I'm going to make sure you know I destroyed the plant by sending a really hot east wind that wasn't normal. That way it would destroy the plant entirely. God was giving him his provision in the midst of his discipline. And like I said, it's easy for us to see it as we read the text because the words literally are there. We can go back and we can study them over and over again. And it's easy to do that maybe in our own life when things are going well because when things are going well, we have time to sit back and pause and reflect and say, man, God, you're so good. Thank you for what you've done for me recently. Thank you for how you're working in my life in these moments. But what about in the midst of the tough season? You see, this can seem a little vague or fuzzy to us. And when it becomes vague or fuzzy for myself, I ask the question, can I still worship God in the middle of these seasons? Can I worship him when I'm going through something I would rather not be going through? Can I still be thankful to God for who he is and what he's done, even when I'm hurting? When I faced unbelievable loss, when I didn't get the promotion I wanted, when my kids make the choice that I wish they hadn't, when everything seems to fall to ruins around me, can I still worship the one who is all I need? See, if I can get to that place, if I'm able to remind myself that God is good, that he is at work, that I might look more like my savior, then I'm able to rest assured that God is providing me with the things I need. It might not be that I have what I want, but I am undoubtedly taken care of by the Lord. And so when I take a moment to reflect, to feel God's provision for my life the way that Jonah does, I'm so much better for it. You see, and this is what is promised for those who follow God's promptings, those who accept his invitation, those who walk into new life with him. It's not that you will experience abundance in this world, although you could. No, the guaranteed result is this. Following God's prompting is that he will work to bring about his kingdom, and you will get a chance to see it front and center. It's not that you will be blessed beyond belief, although you will because you are in the presence of the Almighty God. You will not be blessed in the human standard of wealth, easy life, doing whatever you want. No, you get to see God working firsthand, and that is far, far greater. Listen to what happens in Jonah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Jonah goes and does what the Lord has commanded him. And in eight words... Eight words, major kingdom work is done. 
Jonah goes and follows the prompting of his God and major kingdom work is done. The people respond to the message and they realize their wickedness. In fact, they go into mourning over what they've done and how they've been living their lives. You see, when Jonah followed God's prompting, he got to see a miraculous sight. Thousands upon thousands of people responding to God and recognizing their great need of him. There is nothing more I would love to see than thousands of people responding to God. That would be the most amazing sight I could ever see in my life. And Jonah had been spoiled because he had already gotten a foretaste of what it looked like to see a large group of people respond to God because the men on the boat had recognized that God was God and that they needed him. And when he goes to Nineveh, he sees it on an even larger scale. And this is a man that I am so jealous of because he got to see God work in unfathomable ways. The disappointing thing for me is we won't all see God work in this way. See, has he prompted you to something recently? Has he asked for your faithfulness? Has he asked for you to pray for someone or something? Has he called you to, cl- to declare who he is to a coworker, a friend, a family member? Have you responded Have you followed his promptings? Did you see God work the same way he did in Jonah? My guess is no. But here's what's encouraging. That even though your life didn't end up looking like the end of a Disney movie where everything gets put back together great, your life just kind of moved forward. But here's what probably did happen. God began to do something from the inside. He began to change who you are on the inside. And from the inward, it began to work its way outward. And this is the typical way the kingdom is brought about. You see, God brings about his kingdom through ordinary people living ordinary lives for an extraordinary God. He brings about his kingdom through ordinary people living ordinary lives for an extraordinary God. Your life won't look like Jonah's. And if it is, man, I'm excited to see what God does with you. It's far more likely that your life will look more like maybe one of my friends who spent a year and a half in Florida. He was doing ministry and he was at a church and he wasn't really sure what God was having him do. He just knew that he was supposed to do ministry, that God had laid on his heart to go spend time with young people. So he went and he hung out with some, uh, some sophomores and he got to hang out with the leadership team and he was just faithful to be there as often as possible. Again, never really sure of what God was doing. And in fact, he would leave and still be unsure if he had ever accomplished anything for God. But about a year ago, he told me that he got to have the, the curtain pulled back just a little bit that someone that they both knew, that this person uh, knew someone else who they were all friends. And uh, this young girl said, "Uh, I have to thank him for what he did. He was just there and he accepted me even when I didn't accept myself. He showed me that God could love me in the midst of me not loving who I was, that when I was making bad decisions, that God could still choose to love me. 
And so she had made some decisions in her life to follow Christ in a brand new way. And then he shared a story with me of how he was called by one of the other young men that he had mentored, that he was hanging out with. And his life had fallen to pieces, and he just wanted to know more of who God was. That when he was in high school, he had everything figured out. But now that he had grown up a little bit, things had fallen to pieces. And this young man who was unsure of the ministry he had done in Florida, if it was ever going to be fruitful, found out that God was doing something in the midst of an ordinary day, an ordinary life to bring about an extraordinary kingdom purpose, that those two young ones would be serving the king today. You see, the kingdom of God is not built in mighty strokes, although it can be. It is built every day by you and me declaring our extraordinary God. You see, for Jonah, it, it was amazing, but he still kind of messed the whole thing up. At the end of the story, he's not exactly happy. And God realizes this. And here's what I love. God chooses to redeem Jonah's story. You see, Jonah was mad that God would choose to save the, his people. He was reluctant to go to the people and offer them a chance for repentance. So God sent his son to show us the better way to respond. You see, because Jesus is truly the better Jonah. Some quick hits on Jesus and Jonah. Jonah is the only minor prophet that Jesus speaks about in his time on earth. He talks about him in Matthew 12, and he says that he's going to have the same sign that Jonah had, that he would go into the ground as Jonah went into the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, and then he would come back. And Jesus not only talks about him and honors him as a prophet, but he also faces similar situations as Jonah, and instead of choosing to respond poorly, he responds rightly. Think about this. Jonah and Jesus both get onto a boat, and a supernatural storm comes about. Jonah chooses to respond in shame that he had messed up. Jesus chooses to respond in confidence and say, I know the God who has sent me will take care of me. He stands up and calms the storm. There's a difference in those stories. One responded to God the right way. The other was ashamed of his previous response. Or how about this? Outside the city, Jonah is angry that God would choose to save a people who had not chosen God. Jesus, as he's going into Jerusalem for the last week of his life, gets to Jerusalem outside the city gates and weeps with compassion for the people who might be lost. Will you choose to be angry or compassionate? Will you choose to respond in shame or confidence of who your God is? And then even the last one, the whale, through the whale, salvation came for a city called Nineveh. Through a tomb, salvation came for a world that needed God. You see, these things happen because Jesus was consistently choosing to live righteously his walk always matched his talk. Jesus never fled God's presence. Jesus continually felt God's provision. Jesus always followed God's promptings. You cannot get away from that. God is, Jesus is constantly doing what the Father had sent him to do. And you say he was God. Uh, yeah, he was fully human. 
Jesus was not just God walking around here. Jesus was like you and me. Hebrews declares that we have a high priest who can sympathize with us in everything we go through. And that's not, gonna, that's not to say we're going to follow Jesus' pattern perfectly, but we do get to choose which pattern we will follow. We get to choose whether we will follow the pattern of Jonah or Jesus. And if you're modeling your life on someone, would you choose to model it on someone who's okay? Or would you choose to model your life on someone who's best? Would you choose to, if you wanted to be a football player and you wanted to be a quarterback, like it or not, would you choose to be like Blake Bortles from the Jaguars? I can't even remember where he's from. Right, like I don't even, he's somewhere. Or would you choose to be like, I hate to say this, Tom Brady. Like, the dude's the GOAT. Like, he is the greatest of all time. I don't care what anyone says. A man who was ranked 193 in the draft and suddenly has, Jason, where are you, six Super Bowl rings, something like that. The guy's unbelievable. Who would you choose to follow? Whose pattern would you choose to set yourself up to follow? Would you choose the one who, yeah, he made it, but he didn't really do anything with his opportunity? Or would you choose to follow the one who did something unbelievable? You see, would you choose to follow Jonah, who is absolutely used by God, but did it the wrong way, was constantly having to be reminded of what he should have been doing? Or would you choose to follow Jesus? Because what I think this really comes down to is this. We oftentimes find it easy to follow the pattern of Jonah because he's more like us. He messes it up. And I don't really have too much to have to worry about. I know God's got it taken care of anyways. To follow Jesus means that we have to acknowledge one thing. He's worthy to be followed. He's worthy to be emulated. He's worthy to have us say, whatever the cost is, I'll do it his way. Because Jonah's way is way easier. I just have to face some discipline. Ezra wants to do things his way all the time, and I have to constantly recorrect him. Man, His dad would not have to get after him nearly as much if he just did what I told him the first time. I'm not doing it because I'm mean. I'm not telling him to eat these different things because I'm a, a jerk. I'm telling him to eat these things and to do the things he's supposed to do because I love him and I want what's best for him. But Ezra's way is way easier for Ezra. My way is a little bit more difficult. It calls him outside of himself to follow a different pattern. The same is true with Jesus. And if we don't think that he's worthy to be trusted, we don't think that he's worthy to be followed, if we don't think that he is the God who truly cares about us and has a kingdom perspective for us, we won't follow him the way we should. And so we're going to close in the next moments, and we're going to sing two songs. And the first is literally going to ask you the question, is he worthy It's a brand new song, and we're going to, it's a call and response. And so uh, we're going to sing, and then we have the opportunity to respond. And as Ed leads us, I would challenge you this. Will you truly respond the way that you're supposed to and declare that he is worthy? Or would you rather say, I'm going to go about it Jonah's way. I'm going to go about it Ryan's way. I'm going to go about it Doug's way. I'm going to go about it Beanie's way because those ways are easier. 
Or will you respond and say, I'm choosing to trust God and say that he is worthy even now. I don't want to live like Jonah. I want to live like the better Jonah. Pattern of Jonah or Jesus? And if you've chosen to follow Jesus, I want to give you great encouragement that as we declared that song, that is what the Lord is seeking from us, our response. We're not going to get it right every time. Man, nine times out of ten, we're going to get it wrong. But he wants us to come to him, to declare that he is worthy over and over again. When Ezra chooses to give me his attention because he wants to give it to me, nothing can upset me. And if it's fleeting, it's fine because I know he'll come back and choose again. And the same is true of the Father, that he wants our attention. He knows it's fleeting. He wants us to say, you're worthy, even when we lose sight of him. And to choose him yet again, to declare that over and over again. As we leave this place, rest assured that you can make that choice today, even if you've messed up time and time again this morning even.